Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. Eleanor was 19 and she's standing at the edge of the world with the same questions as, you know, my my characters in 1945. And I I hope that's where the reader lands with this too. They can identify with that. That every stage of your life, you're rediscovering who you are. You're you're having to be okay with what you don't know, always. That's Kimberly Brock talking about how the real life, centuries old mystery surrounding Eleanor Dare and her carved stone whispered across time to give wings to her latest novel about family legacy, loss, and the desire to be remembered. The book is called The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare. So I learned about the Dare Stones 20-something years ago, just by accident. I love to find something that I don't know about that I should know about. I grew up an hour away from Brunel University where the stones are housed and I'd never heard anything about them. And I was just really interested. It was a woman's story. It was an inconvenient woman, right? And so I wanted to see it. And I did not expect to be very emotional though. I cried when I saw it and I thought, what is wrong with me? Why am I crying over this? And I was sitting in the parking lot afterward and I realized If I had been 19-year-old Eleanor, a new mother and just standing at the edge of the world, and my dad had gone back to England for supplies and never returned, according to the stone, there's a massacre and her husband and her child are killed and most of the colonists. I don't think I would have been standing there thinking, boy, we're really going to make it. This is going to turn out great. I would have just wanted to leave a mark so that I would be remembered. Hmm. And who would I be leaving that mark for? And I wondered if there might have been another child. It's possible. And I, I don't know that that is what got to me. Like thinking about the lost colony and this stone being carved in 1591 and being left where it was later found in 1937. And I thought, what was that stone all about during all the time in between? Did it matter to anybody? Could it have mattered to somebody? And that's where I thought it would have mattered to her daughter. It would have mattered to the next daughter and the next daughter and the next daughter. And that story would have passed down through that family in some way. And I thought, it's a story a mother is telling. And once I started writing it, it became clear that the stories that our mothers tell us are not always the truth. They are pieces and parts of truth when we need to hear them. So that's how it became more of a fable. It became this this story that passed from mother to daughter for generations. And you get what you get from your mom. You don't always get it all at 
in one go. And then sometimes they run out of time before they can tell you everything. Okay, I'm going to interrupt right there and fill in some details. Kimberly sets her story in 1945 and tells the tale of Eleanor Dare's imagined descendants with alternating chapters from the perspective of two descendants, Alice and Penn. Penn is just 13 years old, and Alice is her mother. Alice's own mother died when she was young, and Kimberly's story behind that death and Eleanor's life is slowly revealed with the help of an heirloom, a treasured book, passed down from mother to daughter for 400 years. And I just, I wanted it to have some faults and some mystery and to really reflect how mothers and daughters communicate and how women's history is passed. I think that what you just said about how mothers and daughters communicate was maybe what struck me the deepest. There's this point where Alice is learning about how other people saw her mother. It helps her see herself differently too. Right. Seeing her mother as a real person helps her grow. And I just, I just love the way you peeled that back. And she also is then, of course, trying to understand her daughter at the same time and trying to be the right version of a mother for her daughter. Right. You played around with the word light, this sort of illumination that we receive from our mothers. And really this idea of light goes back generation after generation after mm-hmm. generation. How did that come to you? I think I, that it goes in both directions. For one, I think we look to our mothers for an example and we resent them when it's not there. You know, it, we really depend on that. We're, we're looking for them to show us who we are, but it goes the other way too. I think your kids light you up. Like they shine a light on everything about you, good and bad. So you're faced with yourself through your children. So you're dealing with it generationally. You're dealing with it in different ages and stages of your life. It happens over and over and over again. So I think human beings look for answers. We want conclusions and answers. And the best that a mother can do for her child is to to shine a light and hope they find them. I love this idea of not giving the answer, not, not providing the path. Like at one point, Alice is trying to give the path to her daughter. She's yeah, here's the path. Right. But she, uh, she grows in her role as mother and this idea that instead you just light the way. Yep. You have to let them find their own. And then it, you use light as a reference for what Eleanor carried away with her. She walked away from this stone. The light was in her. Right. I thought your use of illumination as a metaphor for how we mother, but also what sustains us was just, I don't know. I just, I loved it so much. (laughs) I told you I might get emotional talking about it. (laughs) That's okay. You're about to make me cry. I think the idea 
of light to me too, what you were talking about, who, who you carry with you. That's a big part of it. Now, the book is about loss. But more than that, when you get right down to it, it's survival. It's survivor's guilt. Mm. Because here Eleanor stands, you know, and that's a lot of people to carry with you, a lot of expectations. And when it doesn't turn out, how do you go from there? Where do you go from there? I guess I, I believe the only way is that you're carrying all of it with you, not as a burden, but as a gift. And our losses are hard to carry as gifts. Yes, there's sort of almost an incantation of generations. So the book, um, Eleanor's book, has the, the mysteries and the wisdom of women. There's recipes and stories and drawings. I have to tell you, I just, cr- I crave that book. I would love to have. Oh, me too. That's why I made it up. <laughs> what a gift from mother to daughter to mother to daughter. They know the names going back. I'm an, an Eleanor Dare heir, right? Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you have done that with your lineage. Have you thought I'm the daughter of? Oh, yeah. She's the daughter of her and she's the daughter of her. Have you done that? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, my dad is sort of the family historian. He loves history. And while I was growing up, we had this wall. I grew up in an old farmhouse. It was built in 1912. It just felt like it was built out of stories. So on our front wall in the foyer, when you walked into, into the house, our family photo, my mom and dad and my siblings, was in the center. And then on either side of that photo, we had photographs of our predecessors. So on my dad's side was his family. And then on my mom's side was her family and it started with our grandparents. And then it went back generation after generation after generation. You could see the family tree on the wall. So when I got married, I made copies of all of those photos and they have been on our walls and the homes that we have had over the years. And I just always loved that. But I also looked at it and thought, I wish I knew their stories. And so I thought, what if I I had that? What if I had a book? And what if I had that book? Would I care if it was true? Or would I just be glad to have the message and the connection, you know? So that's where that comes from. Well, that's a big theme in the book is this idea of truth. Like I think one of the characters says, a story doesn't matter because it's true, but because it's been told. When I wrote that line, I remember sitting back and thinking, what? And it's from Claire. So Alice's mother, who is not, who is not necessarily in her right mind. And, and I thought, can I really, I knew it was going to leave it in. Yeah. But I worried that it was irresponsible because it implies that it's okay to lie or to give half truths or to, you know, to give your whole twist on a a history that's not correct. And those things really bother me. And so I wondered why am I, what am I trying to say here? And I think it is really only true when it comes down to love and more or less, what I'm trying to say is if you're telling a story, a story is not factual. Mm. 
And I think what we're doing is we're as mothers and, and as I did with Eleanor's tale, we're giving our children a story and over time we build the truth into it. We echo it a little bit, even in Sonder, he's, he's listening on a hand radio at night to these messages that are coming across the airwaves and potentially they're coming from POWs, but nobody's really sure, but it's one of the ways that he's feeling productive, feeling useful, and he's taking the stories he's hearing on the airwaves and passing them on in the hopes that there's something good that comes from it. He's doing it out of love. Right. Hope is the word, I think. We're trying to pass hope to one another. Part of the book is about not focusing on conclusions. I think when we learn about the lost colony, that's the first thing that we jump to is, well, well, what happened? We want the answer. And this book is about the fact that you just don't get them sometimes. You just don't get an answer. But you can still be loved. There's a point when they first have the book in their hands, this commonplace book that's been handed down from mother to daughter to mother to daughter. And they think it's been about 400 years of women putting their mysteries and wisdom into this, this book. And the daughter asks her, how does it even still exist? And she says, it, it's been treasured that love makes things last. Because that's what I wish was true. You know, there, there is so much that's lost. It's just lost so fast that we forget and we don't know, or we don't tell our stories to one another and you turn around and somebody's gone and you think, oh, if we just, we should have sat down and taped that conversation. We should have written that down. We should have asked. And I, I hear that over and over from people, especially as I'm getting older too. I'm 50 this year. And I think that's what I was thinking about is, you know, what if, what if it did last? What if you did have something that could last? What would make it last? What does make those stories last? Well, and I'm really focusing in on mother, daughter, mother, daughter, because clearly that, that spoke to me. And even as I was reading, I thought, did she write this for her mother? Or did she write this for her daughter? Or both? Both. Yeah, both. I focused a lot on that, but you really have also woven a story in World War II. And so there's another whole layer of this story that also has to do with acceptance and forgiveness and dealing with loss. Were those layers always there for you in this story? You know, home front stories are not as common. There's not a lot written about the women that were here at home in America trying to figure out how to feed their families. And I, I know this sounds silly, but my kid, my older two kids went off to college and I don't know how to cook anymore for just me and my husband and, and the one child that's here at home. And I thought about that. I thought about what was it like to try and make meals for people who were never coming home again? And what was it like then to be asked to take care of or include somehow these POWs that we had we have POW camps for Germans we have POW camps for Italians we had we had all kind of camps going on in America and in Georgia I knew there were Italians and I thought 
if Ella's husband had died at the hands of Italians very early on in the war, and then the Italians were no longer our enemy, mm. is that still a personal enemy? What, what do you make of those people? How can you face them, look at them? Right. And what are you teaching your children about that? That's a good place to pause in our chat and listen to a few minutes of the audiobook. This is from Chapter 1, the part where Kimberly lyrically lays out the home front part of this story. But first, a quick side story about a coincidence discovered between author and narrator after the audiobook was produced. She said, well, I grew up in the South. And I said, really, where did you grow up? And I, she said, North Carolina. And I said, well, I lived in the Triangle area for a few years when I actually learned about the Dare Stones. I was there. And I said, so um, you would have probably just been a kid. Where did you grow up? And she said, Cary, North Carolina. That is where I lived. So she was a little girl there. In North Carolina when I first learned about the Dare Stones in the same little town and now she's the book narrator and we didn't even know one another. That's a neat serendipity isn't it? Yeah it was fun. I got a kick out of that. Okay so that narrator from that small North Carolina town is Brittany Presley. She's narrated over 450 titles She's an Audi Award winner, and you might have also heard her voiceover artistry for brands like Stouffer's, Tic Tac, or Ulta Beauty, and as a voice of World of Warcraft, Mechanome. Here she is performing The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare, written by Kimberly Brock, published by Harper Muse Books. It was now the spring of 1945, and my husband Finch had been killed in Italy two years before. The war had crept into the small rooms where we lived above the motor garage my daddy had owned on the outskirts of Helen, Georgia, a remote and failing logging community on the verge of becoming a ghost town with less and less traffic on the highway. The change was so quiet we hardly felt it at first, but with so few travelers, the need for our services was all but obsolete. Rations limited the food on our table, and although Penn didn't know it, the savings in our account. We were like almost all the other families around us. The sorrow of neighbor women shone in the gold stars flying on flags outside our doors, and we mourned the ordinary lives we once believed we would live. Mysteries were the meat on our tables. We didn't long for the unknown, but fantasized about full pantries, dirty boots by the door, and the soft snores of sleeping men who would never breathe beside us again. Finch had been headed for a POW camp, but then the army learned later from an Italian POW who'd been present at the execution that he'd been shot and rolled into a mass grave in some farmer's field. The prisoner's memory surfaced only after Italy declared itself an ally in 1943, 
more than six months after Finch's capture, and amounted to only a vague location, no other details. When the news finally came by way of a very young officer standing at our door, we'd been given hope that at least they might find remains and he'd be brought home. It would have been better had Penn not had that expectation, for it consumed her. Though it appeared less and less likely the more time that passed. Whatever his dreams had been for himself or his family, Finch had taken them with him, and hers too, it seemed. His pension was all that was left now, barely enough for us to live on. Not that it was any excuse for the choices I was making, but I'd been working hard to be both mother and father to Penn, and I was exhausted long before we'd ended up on this roadside in southern Georgia at the edge of night. The service station was all we had, and all Penn had of her father, and I knew what it was to lose your home. For a while, I'd bartered rubber patches for fresh vegetables and took in wash to get cloth for Penn's clothes. I'd made do every way I knew, as long as I could. And I had been foolish enough to think our lot couldn't be any sorrier. But then my daddy had died. The church had still smelled of leftover lilies from the service a full week before. Barely a dozen people had been there for us. Afterward, Penn and I walked alongside Imogen through town, filing into the bank to collect the contents of my daddy's safe deposit box. At first, Everything was orderly, sorted, exactly what we'd expected from my daddy. There'd been no sentimental notes, no official will and testament to be read, only an envelope for each of us, containing short lists divvying up his scant belongings. Imogen inherited Merely's and what monies he had saved, enough to keep her comfortable into old age. For Pen, there was his truck. No surprises. Only my envelope remained. What I found there hit me between the eyes. The deed to Evertel, along with the antique key to the rambling old estate. When I pulled out that paper, the key clattered to the floor. I'd grabbed it up fast, like I might have a sharp knife. It was maybe six inches long, with an ornate handle and large teeth on the end of the shaft and I'd closed both hands around it, my thoughts rushing back to the memory of Evertel. Evertel, the, the house that they go back to, this family home that's pre-revolutionary, it, it's an origin story for our country. And, and the, the South is famous for telling stories, but there's a lot of stories we don't tell. So yeah. Evertel is kind of this big haunted house. And that's how I see, that's how I see the South where I live. I, I have this love hate relationship with it. And there's, it's this big, beautiful keepsake. And yet at times it's very empty and unwelcoming. And it's, it's been built over, over that 400 years, you know, good, bad, ugly, it's all in there. And you have to, to recognize it to know who you are now and what you want it to become. How do you make a home out of that? Right. 
And this 13 year old girl trying to figure that out and, and an older woman saying to her, you have to recognize what everything around you is built on. I think women's stories, getting back to that, are very cyclical. Women are cyclical in the way that we think thing, think about things. Um, patterns of life are cyclical. And so that had to do with it too, I guess, just how I see women. Yes. And how they relate to the world and one another. And it kind of ties back into the idea that we don't conclude. There is no conclusion. It's a cycle. The last question I always ask authors has to do with the, the title of the podcast. Um, Desideratum is a Latin word that means the desire for things that are essential. And so I like to ask authors, if you had to tell somebody, this is what's most essential to me, what would you say? Um, I need a nest. I need a nest. And I think to be creative, I have to feel good about my nest. To be any good as a mother or a spouse, I have to feel good about my nest. I, I need security in my life. But really, it's, it's not about the, the place. It's about the people, the connections that I have. And in particular, my husband and my children are my nest. I'm a homebody. I'm a, I'm an odd bird, but I'm I am a bird in my nest, I think. So it's my essential. You were talking about the generations on the wall. Have you stayed somewhere where you feel rooted that way or have you or is it really just you make your nest where you land? I make my nest where I land, but the places I feel best are typically in the south, typically on the water. I love a marsh. So my books end up being set there looking out at a marsh and we have this little, little pond behind our house. that's kind of marshy and it's, it's not a great pond, but I'm telling you, it makes me happy looking out at this little marsh. I don't know why, but that's my thing. And I think it has to do with the themes that I write about the, the cyclical things and the, I don't know, something about that speaks to me and makes me feel grounded and mm. content. I think the thing that I put into this book that's probably most essential, essentially me, is that idea that um, you're never going to have all the answers. And we spend so much time in our lives clamoring for answers and clamoring for just the right place and clamoring for to be able to see everything clearly. And I think that is the part that we're supposed to be enjoying Mm. the things that we don't know. And then, and so the, the book talks about loving the mystery most of all, because everybody wants the answer. What happened to the lost colony? Everybody wants to know what happens. When is this war going to end? Maybe we need to embrace the things that we can't see and the things that we don't know. And maybe that's what love is. And maybe that's what a marsh is to me. Yeah. I love that. That's really great. I want to close by congratulating Kimberly on making Southern Indie Booksellers Alliance must-read list for April. You can select a local bookstore to support and support this podcast when you follow our affiliate link to Libro FM to purchase the audiobook for The Lost Book of Eleanor Dare. The link is in the show notes and on our Linktree bio in all our social media accounts. 
Thanks to Kimberly's publicity manager at Harper Muse Books, Margaret Kircher, for connecting me to Kimberly. And as always, thank you for listening.